Welcome one and all to a little thing we like to call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we've got an exciting random update on procedural issues and some other episode notes for you. We are going, we attended the, the, the summer seminar. We've told you that probably already. And during that summer seminar for Superior Court judges, we learned stuff. Yeah. It may be the last one Tane sadly ever attends as an attendee. Yeah, probably will be. I don't need them credits. No <laughs> I don't more. need no stinking hours. <laughs> I don't need no stinking credits. But we have received some follow up emails from some very smart people who have identified some case law that you may find valuable that follows up actually on prior episodes that we've recorded in our DUI series. Yeah, let's shout out to our friend of the podcast, Ben Stuttered, for some of those things. Judge Stutter, whoop, 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 whoop. Again, plagiarism cover. Yeah, we covered him. And then, although this episode might appear a little bit unorganized or, or organized randomly, we thought we would shout out and share some of the information we learned at the summer conference as well. So with all that being said, we're going to dedicate this episode more to procedural issues, not really evidence. We did a separate episode on that, and we'll do our, our best to identify the topics as we move through them today. So, Tane, with that being said, tell the folks what we're going to talk about first. Yeah, so there's been a, a recent case that answered a question that had kind of been looming out there for a while, and, and that case is... Uh, Will a written jury charge help cover an omission or misstatement in the verbal jury charge? And that was something that weird, nerdy guys like you and me had talked about before. We actually talked about it with Judge Stutter, or I guess not with Judge Stutter, but we but the episode came out after we had recorded with Judge Stutter. So Judge Stutter was listening in case we, we blasphemed, blasphemed him at any point in time. And he knew the answer to the question that we talked about in our jury charge episode where we said, I wonder if having it in writing would cover either an oversight or a misstatement. And lo and behold, thanks to Judge Stutter, we found out that there's some law on this because yeah, because it, it has to be plain error, right, Tank? That's right. And it, and it, it wasn't even old law. It wasn't arcane law. It was nice, fairly fresh new law. <laughs> fresh new law. Yeah, it still has that fresh law smell, that new new law smell that we all love so much. So the cases that we're about to discuss, they have to be examined under the plain error rule because naturally nobody made an objection during trial. Right, if they made an objection not. during trial, well, that'd be a whole other story that right. we wouldn't have this problem to start with. Right. But we are envisioning here, Tane, where we either made a misstatement or an omission during the what we read Mm -hmm. But the written charge that we're sending out with the jury, because you and I send out written charges, we not do. required, but we do. That's right. It, it, it has a correct statement of law. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, here comes the Oates case. O-A-T-E-S. Kind of like John Oates from Hall Oates. Yeah, exactly. Want to follow along? Visit our website. Find this episode outline and more information on this episode at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Com. A 2020 case where the trial judge tried a rape and child molestation case in the verbal reading verbal reading of the charge, the judge omitted the requirement that the defendant be proven to have committed an 
indecent act against the child as required in the statute, the child molestation statute. However, that word was in the indictment and it was in the written charge that were sent out with the jury. The, the Court of Appeals said, and I'm going to read the quote, even though that's usually not awesome. The trial court instructed the jury that the state had the burden of proving every material allegation of the indictment and that the court would be providing copies of the indictment instructions for their use during deliberations. The trial court's written and oral instructions as a whole adequately informed the jury of the charges. Whew, thank goodness you sent out those written charges. Well, and that's what I was going to say, Wade. I mean, you and I always talked about that idea. I, I, I didn't used to send out the written charges. I thought it would confuse the jury. But I came around to the idea that as a belt and suspenders approach, if they weren't listening or if somebody wasn't listening, that maybe it was a good idea to send out the charge. I think the appellate courts are here are saying, hey, folks, it's a good idea, and it might actually save your case uh, from being reversed to send out the jury charges, as long as you're sure that what you're sending out is correct. Now, now shout it. let's just recover this real quickly. What have you found, or what did you find before you quit working with us abruptly with no very little warning? <laughs> what, what had you found about how sending out charges affected things like jury questions or time of deliberations? I absolutely had a a complete drop-off almost of questions about charges from the jury. It was amazing to me that I got almost no request to recharge or even explain a jury charge that I had given once I started sending out written charges. That was my experience, too. All right, tell everybody about Chris, C-R-I-S-T. Sure. So in the Chris case, which is a 2017 case, a sexual battery trial, the court's holding was that there was no plain error in omitting elements of the offense from the oral charge where the elements were included in the written charge provided to the jury. The court said, and the definition of sexual battery had been underlined by one of the jurors during deliberation. In other words, there was some actual evidence that somebody was looking at that in the jury room because they had physical evidence that on that copy it had been underlined. The court said, it is, of course, well established that the charge to the jury is to be taken as a whole and not out of context when making determinations as to its correctness. And for purposes of plain error analysis, the, quote, charge includes, and this is the quote from the court, not only instructions given orally to the jury, but necessarily must apply to any written instructions given to the jury. So that's really just reinforcing what, or or actually this was the earlier case, but that reinforces the comments that the Court of Appeals made in the Oates case, um, indicating that the written charge adds on to the oral charge given to the jury. I found this funny because this was in that case too, Tane, a little while later. It says, the jury was told at the outset of closing argument that it need not remember all the court's instructions, which were 17 pages in length, and was given a complete set of written instructions, including the sexual battery instruction and went, as they went into the jury room. Um, I don't think I've ever told the jury, hey, don't listen. You don't have to remember anything I'm telling you. I've got to read 23 pages of stuff, but don't listen to that. 
In fact, the way that I always instructed the jury was I didn't tell them they were getting the written instructions until after I'd already given the verbal instructions. I would tell them at the end, you will receive a copy of these instructions for your use in the jury room, but I didn't tell them that until the end. Sort of like telling the alternate, not telling the alternate <laughs> juror they're, they're, the, they're the alternate. alternate yeah, right. you, can, you can ignore the whole trial. You're the alternate. Um, it, they, and they pointed out, to be sure, the better practice would have been to include all instructions in the oral charge following the closing arguments. It would have been a better practice to have read it perfectly. Mm-hmm. But when you give them the written and oral stru- instructions, they then taken as a whole, and that covers what we said. So in other words, without reading any more into Chris, it's a long decision. Both Oates and Chris do tell you, dang, Tane, what we thought and what we pondered aloud. Lo and behold, if we read more law like Ben Stuttered, we would have known that answer. <laughs> well, all I can say is uh, thank you, Georgia Court of Appeals, for your rulings in those two cases because um, it saved reversals and it also gave us some guidance on that. So, Tane, remember back in the day when Wendy's had a line of commercials that said there's a little old lady she had like a little pocket bag. And she Where's said, the beef? Where's the beef? Exactly. <laughs> Where is the beef, Wade? So Where the, is the beef? The next case we're going to talk about is, uh, we'll call it the Where's the Beef case, okay? Okay. Glasper, G-L-A-S-P-E-R. It's not it doesn't even have an official site. We just had a Westlaw site. It's so news. Decided in June of 22. In this case, the defendant was on probation, Tane. And during that probation period, it's alleged that he committed additional crimes that were caught on surveillance video. All right. What? I know. Shocking. So they came to a probation revocation hearing. And Tane, I don't know if you've ever been to a probation revocation hearing. Not generally the most organized event we do in Superior Court. <laughs> I think agree? that's kind of an understatement, Wade. Yes. I, probation Revo Day was like my least favorite day of the entire month. just because it. I've got a thought on that if you ever want to hear it. Organized chaos. I actually have calendar calls for probation revocations. Okay. That a month out. I'm always a month out. Uh-huh. So I have a probation revocation today uh-huh. here at calendar call. Uh-huh. And say, is that an admission or a trial or a hearing? Uh-huh. That's an admission. That's a mission. That's a hearing. That's an admission. That's a hearing. So on the, the day that we have hearings, mm-hmm. we only have people that are properly prepared mm-hmm. and we go forward in one, two, three orderly fashion. Kind much, of amazing. Much better uh, organization there, Wade. Um, the officer shows up to the probation revocation hearing, which is usually a, a 50-50 crapshoot. Mm-hmm. And at that, he did not bring the evidence. Mm-hmm. But he testified to what he saw on the videotape. Wait, so the video didn't get admitted. They didn't even evidence, account for it. Didn't even have it, didn't say where it was. But he told us all what was on it. You know, the thing, he, well, wasn't, you, he, well, he wasn't at that thing. Well, but Wade... You know, hearsay is okay in those in those hearings. I mean, you hear how my voice is breaking up there. Well, the problem was not hearsay. The problem was the best evidence rule. Right. <laughs> and the best evidence rule says the original recording must be accounted for. It doesn't necessarily have to be brought in, yeah. but it has to be accounted for. It must be produced, I think, is the word. Mm-hmm. That case was reversed. It, and, they, and they said, look, it wasn't even close. They didn't even account for it. They didn't try hard. They didn't say I went by the evidence room and it was locked. They're, you know, they didn't do right. anything. The officer just showed up and they said, well, you're here. Let's roll with this. Yeah. And, and, and folks, this is a good example and a good warning to all of us. We do tend to take hearings like that kind of for granted sometimes or or don't give them their due. These are criminal proceedings. I mean, people are getting 
additional jail time as a result of these hearings. So, you know, the lackadaisical attitude about revocation hearings might, we might ought to dial that back a little bit. And, I, you know, I'm, I, I was as guilty of it as the next guy. There were times where, you know, you're just trying to move the case, get it off the calendar, and you might ought to be aware of the best evidence rule and apply it even in a revocation hearing. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So, Tay, when you were sitting as a judge, did you have rules that you tripped over, I mean, words, excuse me, that you tripped over all the time? Yes. Can you think of one? Um, no, not a fan. We're about to come up to mine. Uh-oh. Corroboration. Okay. Does that sound... Legitimization. That was no, one of mine. No, no. <laughs> Corroboration. You did it right. But I trip over that word all the time. It sounds corroborated. Come on. I just couldn't evidence. pull it off sometimes. Um, all right, so all right. let's talk about accomplished corroboration. So a Palencia versus State. In Palencia, Tane, there was no objection to the jury charge as given, as, as want to do. So therefore, this is a plain error case like some of these other ones are. Mm-hmm. This is a burglary and rape case where the two indicted co-defendants testified that Palencia was involved with the burglary, that they pled guilty to the burglary. Okay. But while he was in there, he committed the rape. They didn't have anything to do with that. Okay. They testified, they identified him. In order to remember now, and this is something that, frankly, I don't think we remember as often as we should because there's several cases floating around right now on this topic. When we give the charge that says a single witness's testimony is sufficient to approve a fact if believed, we almost must, reflexively, even without a request, must give the accomplice corroboration charge if there is an argument that an accomplice testified. Agree. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and, and I also would say it's even important to make sure, because those are two separate charges, make sure that you give them together in the charge. Because I've heard people give the single witness evidence charge and then eight charges later give the accomplice corroboration charge. And if you don't give them together, it's nonsensical. They they seem to contradict one another. So you have to understand this case was reversed and remanded to the Court of Appeals by the Supreme Court so now the Court of Appeals had to go back to work to decide whether or not they, – they said there was absolutely no request for this charge. Okay? Mm-hmm. So this is a plain error case. There was mm-hmm. no objection to the charges as given. 
And they said, Judge, you're under a duty that if you give that first charge, the, the, particularly if you give that first charge, you must give the second charge. Mm-hmm. This Palencia case was, um, it cited a case called Stanberry from 2016 that basically said this, but this Palencia case really underscored this. So what I've done in the outline, Tane, is I've given us some end notes. I don't have a lot of end notes in this one, but there's some end notes here that identify cases where it was error not to give an an accomplice corroboration charge, even in the absence of any sort of request to do so. Right. So it has now made it to my trial outline, and I've updated my trial outline when I under my jury charge section. Hey, make sure you don't you don't charge sequential under edge. Make sure you charge aggravated assault as charged in the indictment. Make sure you give the accomplice corroboration charge. Great. Yeah, that's a great point. So that is the accomplice corroboration charge. And there is substantial reason to believe that if you're going, particularly if you give the single witness is sufficient to establish a fact if believed, you have to give this charge. Yeah, uh, if there's any, as you said, any argument whatsoever that an accomplice testified. All right, Wade, we're going to move to the next one. One of our near and dears. Well, one of one of the ones where is a very rare occasion where you and I disagreed on procedure and how to handle things, and so you get to you get to give your your reason. But just in a nutshell, for those of you who may be new to the podcast, um, Wade is the judge who says you have absolutely no reason to have your cell phone in the courthouse if you're on jury duty. To be fair, in the jury room, but yeah. Yeah, but but just leave it in the car. If you're in the jury, if you're on the jury, just leave it in your car. You don't need it. I, on the other hand, was kinder and gentler, and I allowed jurors to bring their phones with them, told them that they could not have them on or use them during any time that they were in the courtroom or not on a break, but that they could have them with them. And so Wade, tell people so today is Wade's, <laughs> tell people the title that so, I put on. So here. today is Wade's opportunity that says uh, to to just reinforce his procedure by saying the title, allowing jurors to have cell phones is dangerous. Reminder number eight thousand four hundred and twelve. So Wade, take it away, buddy. <laughs> to be there, this case involved jurors using of a cell phones maybe outside the jury room. Okay, to be really fair. Right. I, I don't know. The case wasn't really wasn't clear. clear. They did they did research during deliberations, but they didn't say in the jury room at lunch, and they may not have known. Right. But there are a couple of principles here that we need to talk about. And there's one, all jokes aside, that we do need to talk about. Again, a Harris case that is not the Hart Car case. Okay. Right. Which was a part of this this set of cases as well. Yes. And it's so new, it was just decided in June of twenty two. It only has a Westlaw site. The defendant was convicted of homicide by vehicle in the first degree. During deliberations, jurors testified post-trial that they had Googled the difference between first-degree and second-degree vehicular homicide with at least one juror conveying that information to other jurors. Yes. Now, hold on. You're thinking... The new evidence code, which isn't new anymore, it's it's in middle school, I think now. But um, the new evidence code doesn't allow for jurors to testify post trial. Correct, Wade? That's sort of correct. I mean, Rule six hundred six B does not allow jurors to testify about how their verdict was reached 
but it does allow for testimony as to whether extraneous prejudicial information was improperly brought to the juror's attention, whether there was outside influence, or whether there was a mistake in entering the verdict onto the verdict form. Therefore, in this case, all 12 jurors testified post-trial. So, back to the case, Wade. So on appeal, the Supreme Court held that there is a categorical bar to juror testimony with only three well-identified exceptions. Identified, Tane did a great job in his radio voice of doing that before. (laughs) The jurors cannot be asked how the extraneous information impacted their verdict, only whether they received extraneous information. So if the trial court determines that extraneous information was provided to the jury, the trial court can't figure out, cannot ask questions and try to see whether it actually impacted the jury because we, frankly, we don't trust what they're going to say there. Right. Instead, the trial court must must evaluate the prejudice without the benefit of evidence of any internal jury deliberation. So in other words, where there is misconduct, and misconduct sounds very, dun, dun, dun. I mean, it could have been an accident, whatever. But where it's found to have happened, the presumption of harm springs into effect. Right, and, and, and it is a presumption. I mean, you, you have to presume that because they received something they weren't supposed to receive, that it somehow had an in, inappropriate effect on the jury's verdict. Time out, just as an aside, Tane, we have to assume that's true. Right. Right. Because we go through all these evidentiary rules. You can't say that. You can tell them this. You can't tell them that. You can prepare your argument based upon that evidence. You prepare your argument based on that evidence. Now we're going to do something on, uh, it, you know, WebMD. Right. And, and I know that you probably, as I have, have incorporated a pretty significant charge in, in your jury charges, both pre-trial and, and, and at the conclusion of trial, that really admonishes them. You absolutely can't do your own independent research. Correct. The same as you can't go out to the scene of the crime and walk around and you can't, you know, look for your own evidence and those sorts of things. So, Tane, understand that we had a juror use her cell phone to look up this case during Vordar one time, which it means I didn't give her the don't research anything about this case. So now I've even moved it earlier in the process. But sure, anyway, sure. B- back to back to this case. If that, that presumption of misconduct springs into existence, the state has the, quote, heavy burden, end quote, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. This Important. is what got this case got flipped on. Mm-hmm. Sorry, spoiler alert, it got flipped, mm-hmm. if I hadn't already said that. <laughs> it, the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the misconduct was harm, harmless. And there is, there is a list of citations along, arm long. Which, the is, Supreme Court noted, which is good because yeah. figuring out how to prove it was harmless is something that you as the judge are going to have to look at and say, hmm, how does that harmless? Uh, yeah, how, can I, how can you prove a negative? What's my standard? Yeah. The Supreme Court noted that the standard for evaluating non-constitutional errors and prejudice is there's no reasonable probability it impacted the verdict. But where there is a constitutional error, it is beyond a reasonable doubt case reversed and remanded back to the trial court to see if that standard can be met. So, Tane, that's all we have for this episode, dealing with some recent developments involving procedure. Yeah, it's packed full of goodies. 
And uh, so let's just recap. We addressed written jury charges, the accomplished corroboration jury charge requirement, the fact that tangible recordings must be made and produced if relied upon at trial, and a juror's use of cell phones can be dangerous. Is dangerous. (laughs) Can be dangerous. But, folks, the outline is uh, full of statutory and case citations, as we said, and you can always find those at goodjudgepod.com. Please reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com with any podcast ideas, topics, questions, or uh, any kind of feedback that you would have. Hey, Tane, what's, what's the little link to LinkedIn? Like you say, and hook up with us at LinkedIn. That, yeah, sound, just, that sounds wrong. Yeah, just go on the LinkedIn website and uh, type in Good Judgment Podcast, and you will find us on LinkedIn. Well, with that being said, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, linking you to good law. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we've failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this episode. Any last thoughts before we wrap this up? Fleetwood Mac's album Rumors was released in 1977. If you've not heard that album, you missed something in your musical experience. Even if it was released 20 years before some of you were born. Man, I sound like the get off my lawn guy. Anyway, just go listen to that album and report back to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com.